If you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask that you would take and turn to Revelation chapter 10 as we continue on in our study that we have. And for those of you that are watching online at home, I, I trust you have a Bible nearby or one that you can maybe get a hold of on your electronic device. Today the message is called The Mighty Angel and a Scroll. A Mighty Angel and a Scroll. And I'm going to read the chapter to us, all 11 verses, and then I'm going to refer to some different verses as we go through this. But Father, as we approach your word today, we recall the very words that we were singing today about how much of a pleasure it is for us to pour out our praise to you. I was reminded of some of the scenes that we have reviewed as we've gone through the chapters, chapter 4 and 5, of the great worship scene around the throne and that how today we've been able to join with them in singing praises to your name and the glorious emotion and knowledge that we have that you are a God that never fails. So Lord, we pray today that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would enlighten your word and take those things which we may have had difficulty understanding and make it clear to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Beginning with verse 1 in chapter 10, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud and with a rainbow above his head. His face was like a, the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand and he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I was, that, that I had seen standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, there will be no more delay. In the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. One of the disadvantages, I suppose, to expository preaching is that if you haven't been here for the previous few weeks and if you have missed some of the messages that we've had on, on Revelation or maybe you've missed several, I know that today feels like somebody has handed you a book and told you to open to page 100 and try to catch up with everything else that's going on. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of like trying to gather what you have learned from today without any kind of a background. So. So let me just briefly today kind of try to bring those of you that may be watching online or those of you that are here today up to speed on what's happened so far. The word revelation itself comes from a combination of words, 
And when you put them together, it literally means to pull out of hiding or to pull away from hiding or something that has been concealed that we're going to pull so that you can see it. It will be revealed. And from the moment that he begins to do this in the first chapters, the first thing that he reveals in Revelation is the condition of the churches. This was written to first century churches that actually existed, and yet we clearly were able to see that not only were the things that God was addressing with them important to them, but it also applied to where we are within our church age as well. And so chapters 1 through 3 were revealing what the churches needed to do and where they needed to be and what was going on within them. In the fourth and fifth chapter of Revelation, we were caught up into heaven to see the worship that goes on. And I don't know about you, but those chapters have changed the way that I view worship. As I, as I begin to think about the fact that we, while we are yet here on earth, have the opportunity in mornings just like this to lift up our voices and praise and recognize that those are being joined with millions and millions of angels and the, and the elders and the living creatures and that we get to play a role in that right now until we get to stand before that throne with all of them. And that began to inform the way that we worship the Lord then in chapter 6, there was a process of judgment that was going to take place on earth, and it was revealed in the scroll that God himself had held a hold of. Jesus, the Lamb of God, came, one that was slain, and took that scroll from the Father's hand. And then as he begins to open those six or seven seals that took place there, things begin to take place on earth. And in chapter 7, there was an interlude that was revealed that shows us that as the period of judgment is being poured out, God seals those that belong to him. And then there were chapters 8 and 9, which we looked at last week, which was a series of six judgments that were being revealed, going back over the process of the judgment that was being poured out on the earth. And in the first judgments that were poured out, God spoke and allowed the angels to destroy a great deal of the natural part of this earth. And the judgments that came a little bit later with the fifth and sixth seals were those when the abyss, where satanic, demonic forces have been chained and captured since they had fallen from heaven, the key to that is opened and we are given this glimpse of a swarm of demonic locust-like beings flying out that blocks the, the sun. There are so many of them as they begin to speak of an unspeakable influence. And the scripture talks about a 200 million person army that's going to be let loose on humanity. And now we get ready for the seventh trumpet to sound, the seventh judgment to sound, which will bring the end. And as is the case between the opening of the sixth seal and the seventh seal, now between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there is a break in the action. There is a pause. There is a hesitation. And I love the fact that so many of the theologians and the commentators begin to say that they believe that the reason that there is this hesitation and pause here is that God is extremely reluctant to blow the last trumpet. He is reluctant to end the cycle of judgment that will be poured out on the earth and end the opportunity for people to enter into his kingdom by grace because once the sec the seventh trumpet is sounded the age of grace and mercy is over the opportunity to extend repentance is finished 
And God will determine that no one else will enter. We are reminded of how he feels about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, when it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This being the mindset of God, we can understand why he holds back, allowing one more opportunity before the judgment of the seventh trumpet seals it. We talked last week about God's relentless pursuit of us. So great is his love, so powerful is his mercy, so much does he want to extend his grace that he pursues you with everything he's got. So great is his desire for you to enter in his grace. And so as this is happening, this interlude is happening, while the judgments are being poured out on the world in the figure of the sixth trumpet that's happening on the center stage The light begins to dim on that center stage and another light over on the other stage of heaven begins to show up and again we are greeted with the image of the people of God, the martyrs of God, crying out in their prayer thinking, Lord, how much longer before you avenge us? How much longer before judgment is going to come and this role and time of trouble is over? And Revelation chapter 10 sets out to answer the question of the people of God and those that are going through trouble. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to be patient? And as we look at chapter 10 and begin to realize this, we begin to see what God has to say with that. So the first thing that we notice in this is a mighty angel that shows up. He introduces us here in this chapter to the next step in the plan of God with a stunning vision. How many of you were visual learners? I'm a visual learner. So let me show you an artist's rendition of this angel as he descends from heaven. So John sees this angel coming down from heaven, the scripture says. Now, here's what I want you to understand in the way that John is seeing this. The Bible leaves no confusion as to who has sent this angel. He is being sent from heaven. The demons last week came out of the abyss. And so there is literally the setup of a spiritual massive war that is about to take place. The angel descends from heaven. The demons coming out of the abyss. It's the battleground between righteousness and unrighteousness. And it could not be more clear as we enter into this chapter. The angel is standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, speaking to us of the fact that he has absolute dominion over earth. Oh, hallelujah, that in the middle of a battle, we know who has all of the power. Then there's this description of the way that this angel is clothed. He's clothed in robes of the clouds. As I was thinking about that this week, it it dawned on me how big this angel must be that the clouds, however many thousands of feet they may be above the earth, are what robes him and he's clothed in this. Maybe it was a little fog or something that closed around him, indicating the fact that he is powerful, more powerful than even nature. And then John says there's a rainbow around his head, reminding us That with the might of God comes the mercy of God. With the might of God comes the mercy of God. 
His face is described as glowing, as bright as the sun. In other words, God's righteousness and glory are unviewable to us in our current human state. In other words, it would be like trying to look and see the sun. It'll burn your eyeballs out if you try too hard. But so great was his glory. And then we get this description that his legs were like pillars of fire. Now, for those of you that are historians of the Old Testament, you will know that when the children of Israel were being led into the wilderness, it was, it was the flames of fire that would protect them and keep them and lead them at night. And so we get this image that regardless of how dark the world may become in the middle of this spiritual battle, those who know him will see the pillar of fire and will know where to go and how he will lead us in the middle of all of this. We will not be left without a direction. It says his voice was like that of a lion. In other words, he shouted and he roared and what came across was his magnificent authority to speak in everything. And here now this angel comes to remind us that God will always lead his people. God will never leave you nor forsake you. And so within this vision that we have as we look at this picture... There's this collision of, of Old Testament images that's associated with the presence and the glory and the authority of God. And, and if you were the first century church that John was writing his letters to, and you had been shaken by the events of massive persecution, many of them knowing that it may be that if they follow Jesus, it will cost them this, their life. And we who today look at all of this with the understanding that as the judgments come, as the seals are broken, as the trumpets sound, there may be meteor strikes or thermonuclear blasts and that will destroy massive parts of the earth, that in the middle of all of this, the Lord wants us to understand that His church is not to be captured in terror because He is in charge and He will take care of us. So for believers that were terrorized by the looking at the prospect of the future, suddenly there's this strong angel that comes down from heaven. And I've got the impression that when John was looking at this angel, he recognized that there was more strength in this one angel than there was in any of the armies that could be accumulated on the earth. And suddenly there was a peace that comes to him as he recognizes the purpose. In other words, church... We don't have anything to fear in this world. The world can throw all it has at us, but we stand in the power and the authority and the protection of the mighty God who has the final word and who will stand with us and direct us regardless of what may come our way, regardless of what the hosts of hell may try to do. And after we see the picture of this angel, you'll notice that in his hand there's a scroll. And it's striking. Because it says in verse 2 that he was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. This is the first scroll that we get to that is already open by the time we recognize it. Now, you will recall back in the worship scene of chapter 5 that God was holding a scroll which was sealed seven times, which we understood that the Romans would have believed that's how they, they made their last will and testament, so it was understood. It represented the final countdown of human history, the defeating of evil and the coming of the kingdom of God. But in this angel's hand, there is a little scroll, and it's already open. And rather than Jesus being able to take the scroll from God's hand, John was instructed to take it from the angel's hand. Some of the theologians believe 
that this little scroll, because it is already open, represents to us the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that it was the announcement of his mercy that's already been opened, and those that could come to him would find in him protection and grace and salvation, and mercy would be made available to them. Others believe that because it is such a little scroll and it's already open, that perhaps what was written on it was the final stages of revelation and the final way that the judgments were going to be poured out. Either of those things may be true. But the mighty angel basically had two messages. The first message in verses 1 through 7 is sort of a universal and an impersonal message. It's it's to be known through the whole church. But beginning in verses 8 through 11, the message becomes very individual and very personal to John as he contemplates its significance. When we consider the context again at the writing of Revelation, we must remember that there were small circles of believers that were scattered throughout the cities of of Asia Minor, which today would be modern-day Turkey. And these individuals were being horribly persecuted for their faith. And in the middle of that, we understand that when we are having bad days or when it looks as if the future is, is not looking good for us, we sit back and we cry, How long, Lord, before you're going to come? How long, Lord, before you're going to take care of this? And so this vision is given to us that says no matter what we think, the power of God and his grace is in his strong hand, but there is grace that is opened to us. And the angel's feet are on the sea and on the land, and the fact that he stands on the water and on the land indicates that there is no place that you can go that God's grace will not be with you. The third thing that we see in this, in verse 3, the thunder mystery. And he gave a loud voice like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of seven thunders spoke. And I was about to write, but I heard the voice of heaven saying, but he said, seal up what the seven thunders has said and do not write it down. Now, this is fascinating. In the middle of this, the angel cries out or roars and it causes thunder to begin to roll and John has the ability to discern that when the thunder rolls they each have a voice and he hears them and he understands them they each have a distinct meaning so there appears to be seven different messages that John heard when the thunder spoke from the angel's voice and when the thunders roared All of a sudden, our mind returned to the seven seals that we've seen, and now the seven trumpets, and now we're getting ready for another sequence of seven judgments, and we think, well, these are going to be the thunder judgments because it fits in line with everything else. But somehow, in the middle of all of this, as John is preparing to write what he had discerned and heard, the voice of heaven says to him, stop. Don't write this down. Do not record what you discerned and understood and what you heard from the seven thunders. Now, there are two things that we can think about this or make of it. One of them is that God simply canceled the seven thunder judgments because that is well within his prerogative. Another thing, and I believe this is probably more likely is that God simply wanted to preserve some measure of mystery to his prophetic plan. You would think that the tension that we have felt all through Revelation as to how we have not been able to put some things together so that we don't know exactly when God is going to come or how it's going to come or the timing of it all, 
And so we live in this tension of understanding that our lives are to be lived every day in such a way that we start the day saying, Lord, I just want you to know I'm asking you to forgive me of all my sins. I want to make sure that my, my list of things against you is short, that I'm living in the blood of the Lamb, that I'm living in your grace, because today could be the day. Have we not been saying that for us who are part of the church our whole lives? Today could be the day. Jesus is coming soon. And so by not knowing what the seven thunders roll, there is this preser- preservation of the mystery of the timing of God. And so anyone who says they've got the scheme together, anyone who says and prophesies or proclaims that they know exactly how everything is going to flow for the next few years until the Lord's return, because it's all here, I defy you. To put together a system when you don't know what the seven thunders said. I defy you to put together the plan when you don't know what John couldn't write. And so the seven thunders are a guarantee that no one will quite get it all matched up before it occurs. And so we don't know what the angel's voice produced. It is the missing piece. Now I have a grandson who loves to put together puzzles. But when he has to leave the room, he doesn't want you to finish it without him, so he takes a puzzle piece. (laughs) And he will put it in his pocket just so that if he has to go take a nap, you can't finish that without him. And, And I almost picture that being the case here as John was told, listen, I want you to take the puzzle piece that would give more answers and just tuck it in your heart. Now, I can't wait to get to heaven and have a conversation with John as to what this was like for him to know that there are pieces of information that he has that we don't that could have made things much more clearer. But the Spirit of God clearly told him, leave this piece out. And we get to verse 6, and it says, the angel cries out in a loud voice, there shall be no more delay. And the angel coming down is a reminder that we, at this point, are at the very close of the age for believers. This is a divine announcement. No more delay for everybody who's been praying, Lord, how long are you going to wait? The angel says, it is over. No more delay. And the question will be answered, how long, O Lord, before you avenge your righteous ones? Over the course of the history of the church, there have been many that have sought to answer this question. How long before the Lord returns? How long before the last trumpet sounds? How long before the dead in Christ rise first and then we who are alive and remain are caught up with them in the air to be forever with the Lord? And we may speculate with open eye by saying, well, there's some things that God has told us, but there are some things that God has reserved in regard to the end of the age which only He knows. And in verse 7 of Revelation 10, it says, But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophet. We could spend a lot of time here talking about what the mystery of God means. We are all involved in the mystery of God and how it's Fulfilled. In fact, the term mystery is used 20 times in the New Testament, 16 times prior to Revelation in various ways. Mystery is used to describe how the hardening of the heart of Israel in our world today, it's a mystery. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a mystery. How it is a mystery how somehow God is going to take our dead, decayed bodies and in a moment when the trump sounds, our dead bodies will rise up and we will be changed in the air. And those of us that are alive will be caught up and it will be a mystery 
I do have some suggestions for what I want to look like in heaven, but it will be a mystery. It's a mystery for the Gentiles to somehow become fellow heirs with the Jews. That's a mystery. Our union with Christ is called a mystery. Even as husband and wife, it says, the two shall become one flesh and that marriage is a picture of God. It's a mystery. But these mysteries only remain mysteries to the unbeliever, not to the believer. For every mystery in the New Testament is immediately made known and revealed to the New Testament church. God does not leave us without knowing what the mystery is. And so what we see when the mystery of God is being fulfilled is simply that all the world at the seventh trumpet will know what the church already knows. Jesus Christ is the victor. We live in that knowledge. We grow in that knowledge. We pray in that knowledge. We hope in that knowledge. We sing in that knowledge. We worship in that knowledge. We live prophetically in that knowledge because it's not a mystery to us because the Spirit has revealed it. But those that have rejected Him at the sound of the seventh trumpet, it will be revealed the mystery of what God is going to do. You see... It's not a mystery because we know that God has appeared in Jesus Christ. That's not a mystery for us. It's not a mystery for us how the world is going to end. We know because it's been revealed. There's this sense in which God has appointed a day. And the day may be a mystery, but not what's going to happen. He is going to be permitting his family to live in the knowledge that we have no fear because that's not a mystery to us any longer. And it will be revealed to an unbelieving world at the seventh trumpet. And then the last thing that we find out of this passage is John's recommissioning. There's a personal message that's given to him. This man who's in his late 90s, alone on the island of Patmos, exiled, probably thinking that his days of ministry are done. And in verse 8, then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. What's fascinating about this is that for the first time, John is not just seeing something. In fact, he's not just hearing something. John is directly asked to participate in what is happening in this vision. And I love, I, I read that and the voice from heaven, which we are assuming is Jesus, Speaks to him and says, go take the scroll from the hand of the angel. And so John approaches this mighty angel that he's just been told, go take it out of his hand. And if you were standing in front of an angel that big, you're not going to rip that dude out of his hand without asking him. So John approaches, and I would imagine trembling so, and says, may I please have the scroll that's in your hand? <laughs> so I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Now, we're not told exactly what is in the scroll, but I do believe by the way it is written and the context that we can pull it together that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, was written on that scroll. And the reason I say that is because John is asked to internalize it before he declares it. I want you to eat my word. 
I want you to devour it. And when you do, the taste of it is going to be so sweet to you. Listen, how many of you have known through the years of knowing the Lord that when difficult times come, you run to his Bible, you run to the word, and suddenly there's a verse, there's a word that God gives you, and suddenly that which you had been so anxious about is calmed down because of the sweet taste of his word that speaks directly to what's going on within your life. And we're going, oh, Thank you, Lord, that you have not left me, but you know exactly what I need. There's a sweetness to it all. And as we look at that, the sweetness came to him, and it talks about the Word of God being sweet throughout many places, but the idea of God being sweet and His Word being sweet is mentioned in Psalm 19.10 when it tells us that God's Word are more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. It tells us in Psalm 119, how sweet are thy words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. It's it's in this teaching that we see this Old Testament come colliding back in a vision for a New Testament church that his word needs to be sweet and we need to internalize it. My wife and I were talking about a, I can't remember where we saw it, but it it was speaking specifically of individuals, I believe it was in China, that had a guest speaker come and, and he was asking them if they needed Bibles, but they had already memorized the entire New Testament. They said, you know, he starts to read and, and they start just mouthing it along with him and they said, because when you live where we do, we never know what we have in our hand that will be ripped away, but what we internalize can never be taken from us. And so we have this image of internalizing the Word of God before we become proclaimers of it. It's sweet to us. In fact, just think how sweet the Word was to you the first time that you recognized John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was sweet to us. And so when a believer that is persecuted in the middle of all this time hears the angel declare there will be no more delay, as John hears it, it's a sweet word. It means the time has come. There's going to be a time of release. There's the shackles that these people have been bound in are going to be gone. It's a time of freedom. It's a word of liberation. The sweetness has come from God. But after he swallowed it, it became bitter or sour to him. And I believe that what we can grow, gain from this is that the bitterness with which the believer experiences is the realization that God is going to act and bring the age of grace to a close. It's sweet for us because we're going to be with Christ. But it's a bitter experience as well when we begin to realize the people that have rejected and resisted will not be there. So the bitterness that brings sweetness to our mouth and and bitterness and sourness to our soul is the bitterness that results from our inability to be able to change the minds of the unrepentant. Have any of you ever experienced that frustration when you're sharing God with someone in his grace only to have them look at you and say something like this? And I've heard this many times. Well, that's good for you, but that's not my truth. If you want to believe that way, that's okay. But that's not my truth. And, and we walk away from those things feeling so sick to our stomach because we recognize that if there's not a change of heart, we know what their future holds. And the word which is sweet to us becomes bitterness as we begin to recognize and digest its implications, and those are bitter. 
There's also a bitterness that comes as it relates to the Word of God in this way. How do we respond to the convicting or convincing power of the Holy Spirit when He deals with us? How do we respond when the Spirit begins to speak and and begin to point out areas of our life that we know we have not lined up and been obedient with in the Word, and by His Spirit, He begins to dwell with us and work with us and, and motivate us because He wants to move us from the dangers of compromise into the security of obedience. And in the middle of that, knowing the Word, we either can justify ourselves and step back or we can yield and submit our will to what the Spirit is trying to do that would bring us then into that place where we are safe and secure. And for many, it will be a bitter moment when they recognize that they resisted the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying to us in this, the word of hope to the church is the same word that if ignored will become judgment to the lost. And John was told in the last verse, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And so he eats the scroll and then God confirms his calling to him in a prophetic voice that says, you are not done. You're going to be speaking and the words that I have given to you are going to go all over the world to nations and kingdoms. And this morning, right now, as I am proclaiming this word that John was given, there may be nations that might be watching us right now. There may be kingdoms that may be watching right now. His word is being spread across the world. This prophetic word is coming true at this very moment. And we look at this chapter and begin to ask ourselves the question, what then, how do I make this personal? And Kayla, would you please come? How can I make this personal to me today? What does this mean to me? Here's what we need to know. Number one. God's plan always starts with God's called people. God's plan always starts with a God-called people. Chapter 10 just reconfirms and recommissions John as the spokesman for what God always wants to do. Robert Coleman wrote in the book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, and this is what he wrote. Jesus' concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men and women who the multitudes would follow. God's master plan is not about programs. We're really good at programs, but he says, I'm calling men and women who I put my hand upon that will live in such a way that the multitudes would follow them. God is calling us out of this chapter to be a people of influence. He's always looking for men and women who can influence others everywhere you go. It's the starting point of God's plan. This is why he is putting his hand upon your life. Because his whole plan is you. His whole plan is you. Wherever you are, you are God's person with his hand upon you to be in that specific place at that specific time. Because that's where he's put you. So God's plan for your company is you. God's plan for your marriage is you. God's plan for your family is you. God's plan for America is you. Because he always starts with a God-called person and then equips them. We saw this a hundred years ago in the country of Wales. 
where God put his hand on a young man by the name of Evan Roberts, who was probably about 23 at the time. He was not a seminary graduate, never had gone to Bible school, but he went to a prayer meeting one night. He was a common laborer in the mines, and as he went to this prayer meeting, God put his hand upon him, and he rushed to the altar, and as he lay at that altar before the Lord, he began to cry the same words over and over and over again. He said, God, break me. Break me, and then God, bend me. Break my heart for the lost and bend me to your will. Break me and bend me. He left that prayer meeting, and as a young man not sure what to do, just began to share with what God had laid upon his heart, and that prayer launched a revival. This is where God starts. It's, it's not with a strategy. It's not with a program. It's with people. God called people who are willing to pray and say, not my will, but your will be done. Empower me so that I can have your heart and your mind. And six months from the time that that young 20s man knelt down and prayed, 100,000 people in Wales came to Christ. That same proportion, if it took place in America today, would be that in the next six months, because we allow God to put his hand on us and do something, millions and millions in our country would come to Jesus Christ and a revival would break out across our land. And here's the four points of his message. He said it again and again. It starts with just confessing all the sin that you know you have in your life. Confess all known sin. Secondly, he said, deal with and get rid of anything doubtful in your life. In other words, some to the people he's preaching begin to cut the strings of compromise. Thirdly, he said, be ready to obey the Holy Spirit immediately. No delay. When the Spirit speaks, you obey. And fourth, confess Christ publicly. Confess Christ publicly. Stand with me, please. This next chapter that we enter into after this, honestly, I, as a preacher of the gospel, you begin to think about what happens to the lives of those who reject his grace. You reject his mercy. And if that doesn't cause the church to know that while the door of grace is still open, we need to be speaking his truth. We need to love people. We need to walk alongside of them and whatever influence we have, speak life into them, lead them to places where they can make decisions for Jesus. On Sunday nights, we've been gathering around here and we've been praying. We've been praying for revival and I can't help but think that God says, I want you to begin to be an answer to your own prayers. If the church will simply stand up and, and there are so many excuses, I know them all. They come running through our mind. Well, Lord, there are so many other people that live life way better than I do. They're just better at being Christians. I, I'm a lousy witness. Well, then get, become a better witness. Lord, you know all the things of compromise in my life. Well, then cut them. Just cut the compromises. Make different decisions so that you can feel the confidence that comes with the Holy Spirit as he begins to lead us. We're, we're so good at living in that 
gray area. And God said, you know, just, just come on in. Come on in. But folks, there's many in the world in the, the realm of influence that you have that if you don't tell them, nobody will. Because God's got his hand upon you. You are God, a God-called person to take the sweetness of the word to as many as possible so that the bitterness of those that have rejected it will be smaller. So I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes with me for a moment. And maybe you're here today and you've never invited Jesus to be your Savior. We're talking about the glories of heaven and how he leads us, the sweetness of his word. And, and you're here going, man, I, I am struggling because I, I know that I'm lost. I'm, I don't have him as my Savior. And, and today you would like to invite him in. The Bible says that there is a book of life that when you receive him and you ask him to come into your life and you yield your life to him, that he writes your name down it, and that becomes your citizenship to be received into heaven because of the work that Jesus has done for you. And so if you're here this morning, I'm just going to ask as the lights are low and nobody's looking around, just, just would you just lift your hand? I'm just going to say I agree with you, and then you can put it right down. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. As I'm looking around, I'm... Are there others today? You just want to know. Maybe you're watching online right now and you're sitting there in your own living room or you're watching on your computer or on your phone and you're thinking, I wish that I could be there to experience this. Let me tell you something. The presence of the Lord is not limited to this very room. He can be speaking to you right now as well. And so if you don't know Jesus, would you just invite him in? Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your hand upon me. Guide me and direct me. Take me from a life of, of, of sin and bring me into your life of righteousness. Not that I've earned it, but I trust you. And if you will just pray that prayer right now, wherever you are, God has been relentlessly pursuing you for this moment. So, Father, I pray with that one that is in the room and perhaps hundreds that are not here today that are listening right now, would you, would you just receive them, cleanse them, from all of their sin. Make them brand new. May they enjoy this moment for the first time in their life of taking a deep breath without guilt because it's been removed by what you have done for us. We're so grateful for your mercy and your grace. And now I ask that the church, those of you who are here, would you open your eyes and would you look at me? Because this needs to be public. How many of you are ready to take and internalize the word so that you can proclaim it in power? I'd like to see your hands because Syracuse depends on you. Our state depends on you. That we can't just sit back. God has placing his hands upon his people so that we would proclaim the word that the door of grace is still open and his mercy is available. So if you would agree with me, would you lift both of your hands as I pray for you? Father, today I commission this body of believers that are here and those that are standing in their own houses with their hands lifted up. Lord, we stand before you with open hands, meaning that we will not fight against you. We have no weapons to fight against your will within our lives. John, in his late 90s, at the end of his life, thought it's all over for me. And you said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm recommissioning you. For such a time as this, so Lord, none of us have any excuses today. So we stand with arms wide before you, high and lifted up, saying, Lord, 
Feed me your word. May it be internalized within me so that I may speak it wherever I go and influence people towards you. And Father, because it's your will, we seal this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. 